This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. For younger people in the industry um, who are forced to adapt really quickly, it can be kind of disorienting if that's the only thing you've ever known and you're suddenly told that it doesn't matter anymore. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write, a show about creatives, authors, and the stories they struggle to tell. So this is a show where we interview... Oh my god, don't mansplain it. It's relevant because of our guest this week. This is episode 36? I think it's 35. 35. I think it's pretty safe to say that if you're here, you probably don't need us to explain what this show is or what it's about. Except for all the new listeners from my latest tweet. What tweet was that? I'm just saying, like any tweet... Because they all convert. The people flock to your Twitter account. How many followers are you up to? I don't know. 1,200 or something. How many of them are bots? Uh, probably 500. So you're almost at Donald Trump proportions. I'm very, very close. You know, it's funny. I always make fun of Twitter and like, you know, how effective a big follower count is. Uh, but then I just look at uh, one of my friends. His name is Matt Fuller. And I would I would reckon that if you're listening to the show, you've probably seen one of his tweets because he is just the king of snark. I've popped into his analytics before. And this kid sends out a tweet. He has something like 65,000 followers, but any tweet he sends out, if it has a link in it, that link will get, you know, 5,000 clicks or something. It's it's crazy conversion. Is that crazy high or crazy low? Because as someone who doesn't deal in analytics or really even Twitter that much, it's hard to tell whether or not that's a good or a bad thing. That's phenomenal. The average... So 65,000 to 5,000 is a phenomenal average for conversion. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Anybody who has any knowledge of, of like digital marketing or something will tell you that a one percent conversion rate is phenomenal. So you're saying that you have a you have a, a a decent amount of knowledge in Twitter conversion analytics. I mean, I, compared to like the greater world, yes, I do. Which is a real thing that people pay me to do. <laughs> oh my if, god! If you're curious. So, well, I mean, while we're at it, let me just give it a plug. Uh, anybody who is interested in promoting, publicizing, or marketing their new book, uh, you can head to my website, jeffonbro.com, and uh, you can uh, you can hire me. There is an email there. This is not a personal job application. Let's talk about who we got on the show this week. Dory Shafrir. And how did you find out about Dory? Dory is a tech writer for BuzzFeed LA. She just moved over there. Previously, she was in New York, and she was uh, the executive editor. Um, She was a culture editor there for a while. Uh, She's the author of a new book called Startup, which we go into uh, in depth in this episode. She's the host of Matt and Dory's Excellent Adventure, which is the story of her and her husband's journey to figure out uh, how, why, when, and if to do IVF. And she has a great email newsletter, which you should go and subscribe to. And if you're a fan of Dory, or if you listen to this episode and want to become a fan of Dory, you can actually go see her in person if you're in San Francisco, because tonight, May 31st, uh, tonight being the day that we release this episode, she is speaking at Madewell uh, in San Francisco Center from 6 to 8. There will be a book signing. Uh, she's also speaking on June 1st at Book Passage, which you know anybody who's in San Francisco probably knows what that is. Uh, you can get all the details on her website at Dory, D-O-R-E-E dash Shafrir, S-H-A-F-R-I-R dot com. Uh, there's a whole events page, and she has a ton of them uh, in California, Chicago, LA, a uh, bunch of other spots. So check it out. Uh, so let's get to the show. Hey, Dory. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's been uh, you know, really interesting reading your work over the years. You know, When we booked you on the show, I went back and uh, I was just browsing through your history. And I was shocked at how many of your stories I had actually read just organically over the years. Cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of them. You know? um, so, and, and that's in, in very large part probably because you were 
employee number like 65 or something at BuzzFeed. Um, is that right? Yeah, I, I think it was 65, something like that. So I, you're still at BuzzFeed and I want to talk to you quite a bit about that. But um, leading up to it, I, I would love to know like what, how, what brought you there? Like what was your career like? Sure. Um, well, right before I went to BuzzFeed, I was at Rolling Stone's website and I was a senior editor there, mostly editing music news and some features um, for the website. And I'd been there for probably close to a year and a half when BuzzFeed announced a new round of funding and that they had hired Ben Smith to launch like a new um, news division. Um, and I was like, huh, that's really interesting because I had known Scott. Sorry. Oh my God. My dog is barking. <laughs> okay. The perils of home podcasting. <laughs> We've been dealing with that forever. <laughs> um, so yeah. So anyway, right before I got to Buzzfeed, um, they had just closed a new round of funding and hired Ben Smith to be, uh, the editor in chief and his mandate was to launch, a new news and original reporting division. Um, and I had known Scott Lamb, who was one of the very early employees at BuzzFeed for a few years at that point. And in fact, I remember he and I had gotten coffee like right before I started Rolling Stone because I'd been freelancing. And I was like, yeah, I think I really want to go full time. And he was like, cool. Um, like BuzzFeed is not the place for you, obviously, because we just, we don't do any original stuff. We just sort of like show people what's cool on the internet. And I was like, oh yeah, totally. Um, but it was just funny that then like two years later, I ended up working there. Um, what was it like, uh, you know, looking at BuzzFeed back? Cause what year was that? Um, so I started there in 2012 and so, yeah, so that was in 2012. Ben was hired at the very end of 2011 and started right at the beginning of 2012 um, in the middle of the campaign. And I started there in February of 2012. When I first became aware of BuzzFeed, it was mostly through listicles um, and things of that nature that my friends were sharing. And not so recently now, but there was a distinct point where BuzzFeed seemed to pivot, and I started hearing about it more as a venue for serious journalism. Um, and the things that I would see friends share from BuzzFeed changed in tone and tenor from um, things that they had found on the internet that were very cool or very niche or something that just might not be something that was familiar to a lot of my friends, as opposed to what it mostly is now, which is like actual high-level, hard-hitting, long-form journalism. I think that was a distinct pivot that a lot of people, um, I, myself included, was surprised and like really intrigued by. Um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much a pivot as it was an extension, I think, or an expansion, I think, is probably the most accurate way to put it because we still do lists and quizzes and we make funny videos. Like none of that stuff ever went away. So it's not like we pivoted away from it. Um, we just expanded our purview and expanded the scope of what we were doing to include original reporting. But we, I mean, and Jonah has always been very clear about this from the beginning that in his mind, someone might want to read a funny list or take a silly quiz and then also read kind of the hard-hitting politics news of the day. You know, the idea mm -hmm. being that we contain multitudes and <laughs> there are very few people who always want to do either or. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's accurate to say that we expanded. I don't think it's accurate to say that we pivoted per se. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's fair. Yeah, and when they brought you on, what was what was your role? So my title was executive editor, and I was brought on specifically to build out a more arts and entertainment and features um, oriented section of the site. So kind of like 
I guess you could say like a more magazine-y style, whereas Ben was definitely more in a newspaper tradition. Um, so I hired a bunch of people who started writing about fashion and uh, like we did sports and we did um, food and like a, a whole bunch of things that we had never really covered in a strategic way before. Um, the other kind of major thing, one of the major hires that I made in the, when was that? The fall of 2012 was Steve Candell, who had been the editor in chief of spin. And we hired him to be the long form editor, which at the time was like a very, um, it was like a very revolutionary thing to hire a long form editor uh, for a website, particularly one like BuzzFeed, there was still, I think, this perception that people didn't read long things on the internet. And we were like, hmm, I don't think that's true. Um, one of the stories that I had done over the summer was a piece about my, my night terrors, my uh, sleep disorder. And that was one of the first real long form pieces that BuzzFeed had published. And it was several thousand words and it, you know, it did really well and got a ton of feedback. And, you know, that was a moment where I think we were like, oh, we should do this in a, in a more deliberate way. Um, so we hired Steve, but I was overseeing, we, you know, we hired a bunch of entertainment reporters. We, I was really overseeing a bunch of these um, verticals that we had never had before. Um, so that was, that was what I did. <laughs> and was it, was it like a new experience for you? Um, kind of, I mean, I know the executive editor is a role where you kind of uh, focus a little bit more on the direction as opposed to like the actual creation. Yeah, totally. I mean, at Rolling Stone, I had been editing, but I was not involved in strategy or vision or, you know, any, I wasn't involved in any kind of high level discussions. Um, and so it was very exciting for me to be really on the ground floor of this and to be able to build, build something out and contribute to this company that, you know, at the time was very small, like, at that time, we had these weekly managers meetings that were basically all of like the high level people in the company. And there were maybe 10 or 12 of us. Um, and it's just, you know, it's so funny to think now it's like 16 or 1700 people and the quote unquote highest level people at the company are all like C-level people. And, um, you know, at the time it was just, it was a lot more freewheeling. Did you prefer it back then? Um, it's so hard to say because I I really like where it is now, and I I really like my role there now. Um, but it was really exciting then. I mean, I think if you ever have the opportunity to build something from the ground up, like you should take it. Um, it's really hard and um. Yeah, it's it's really challenging, but um, it, it was a very rewarding experience for sure. What are some of the differences you can point to in the culture now that you think are are better than where it used to be? Well, I think everyone's roles are much more clearly defined. Um, like when I started, yes, my title is executive editor, but it just kind of became this catch-all, and I was overseeing verticals that had nothing to do with each other, which sometimes made me a little crazy. Um, and, you know, there were pros and cons to being freewheeling. Like, it was definitely exciting. And you know, definitely, like, no two days were the same. But it could also <laughs> be, like, kind of disorienting. Um, and we were really, like, making things up as we went along, which sometimes worked and sometimes didn't work. And the problem with that when you are in a, in a managerial role is like, if something doesn't work, it doesn't just affect you. It also affects the people who report to you. Um, and so 
kind of wrapping our heads around having that increased responsibility, especially in the early stages, I think was hard because we were moving so fast. Like we were hiring so many people and we would have these all hands meetings every, was it every week or every other week, maybe every other week. And you know, the, the one woman who did HR, she really was a recruiter. She didn't really do HR, but she would say, okay, we're up to, you know, a hundred people two weeks later, we're up to 125 people two weeks later, we're up to 200 people. Like it was always, we were growing so fast that you really didn't have time to even stop and take a breath. Were there any moments editorial editorially that stand out as particularly crazy? Uh, from that time? Yes. Um, the Newtown shooting was the first like real breaking news I mean, tragedy for sure. But like the real sort of all the first real kind of all hands breaking news event. And I, it is possible I'm conflating this with the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, but at one of those, Ben was not in the office and he was unreachable. He was like on, I, I don't even remember where he was. Like, you know, it must've been, I don't actually don't remember. I'm pretty sure it was Newtown. Um, but he was on a vacation or he was just, he was, he was out of pocket and not reachable. And we were, we were really sort of like muddling our way through how to cover this huge event. Like we had this very nascent news operation with a lot of reporters who were very talented and very enthusiastic, but hadn't really done news before. We were just trying to sort of figure it out. And I didn't really do breaking news either. Um, so it was, it was, that was definitely overwhelming. I remember it back in 2011 and I remember it was 2011 because it was before the, the second Obama election. Um, I remember picking up the phone and calling Ben Smith and he picked up mm -hmm. and I imagine that you can't do that anymore. So. Probably not. <laughs> Although with Ben, you never know. Like he, he does randomly respond to people and is always on his phone. So, you know, I don't know. You could try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll just ask you for his it's number. An experiment. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but no, I mean, it, it it is very interesting to see the transformation that, that BuzzFeed has undergone because it really is kind of like a pinnacle of journalism today. Um, but you had a, a little bit of a shift in your role there. Um, mm -hmm. You went from executive editor to, uh, what is your title now, officially? So, um, my title now is senior tech writer. I've actually taken on a new role um, in the last like two weeks. Oh, congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah, congrats. Thanks. Um, but the role I moved into after I was executive editor was senior culture writer. So I was writing about culture, like very broadly defined. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half and uh, just moved into my new role in the last couple of weeks. And why did you decide to make that choice? Which one? The first one or the... To uh, well, I, I get. Did you choose both? Yeah. Or, okay. So I'd be I guess both. About both. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, well, the first one, um, you know, I, I, in my career, I've gone back and forth between writing and editing, and um, I think I've been happiest when I've been able to do a combination of both. Um, but in my role as executive editor, a lot of what I was doing was managing and not so much editing. Um, but I was doing some editing, um, but I was really not doing very much writing. Like I was trying to write a couple of features a year, but it was hard. You know, I had, had a lot going on and I had a lot of people reporting to me and it was just, it was very hectic. Um, and then in, the spring of 2015, I want to say, I wrote a feature about um, a guy who had become famous on Instagram for putting his hair in a man bun. And um, it was like, it was a really fun feature to write. I really enjoyed writing it. It, you know, it went pretty viral. Um, and I was like, gosh, like, this is, this is really what I would like to be doing. Like, I would really like to be a staff writer and not 
have all of these management responsibilities. Like I was, I was getting pretty miserable as a manager and this has nothing, this is no reflection on Buzzfeed. Like this is a hundred percent me. Um, but I had this moment where I was just like, I don't think I can do this anymore. Um, but you know, talking about how Buzzfeed has grown, like we had grown enough at that point where I, you know, I could say to Ben Smith, like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Like, can I move into this other role? And I could. Um, so, you know, it didn't happen overnight. Like we had to kind of transition me off of it and assign my, my responsibilities to other people and hire people. Like it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't instantaneous, but, um, we kind of set that ball in motion, um, which was, you know, amazing. And then, more recently, um, I think it was in part because of my book, actually, which is about the New York tech world. And, um, you know, I've always liked writing about startups and about tech. I think it's it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting beat. And especially now feels particularly vital. Um, and I had been... I'd done a couple of freelance stories to promote my book um, and had done, and they were kind of tech related. And I was like, Oh, I really do miss, like I miss doing these types of stories. Um, And I just, you know, I asked if they would be open to having me write about tech from Los Angeles. And um, there's, you know, there is a growing tech scene here. There's definitely stories here and I think there there had been off and on some talk of hiring an LA-based tech reporter, but it had never really gotten to the point where they were like, we need to, you know, we absolutely need to do this. But when I sort of presented it to them, like, I would like to do this, they were like, oh, great. <laughs> like, <laughs> solve that problem. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I, I took two weeks off. Um, the week my book came out and the week after, because I was traveling and just doing like, I was all over the place. And the Monday I got back was my first day on the, on the tech team that happened to coincide with their, um, their team offsite. So I went up to San Francisco for three days and hung out with the new team and it was great. So you mentioned your book, which is about the New York tech startup scene. And there are so many other parallels that are drawn from that book. Uh, I'm curious with your very, very brief introduction to this role at BuzzFeed, if you're seeing any overlap in uh, like the culture of, of the, the tech companies that you're covering and uh, what you wrote about in the book, or is it too soon to see? Well, I mean, the first post I did for tech last week was um, about a sexual harassment lawsuit. I was, that, I was hoping you would mention that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's a major plot point in my book is sexual harassment in tech. Didn't you write the book because there was a few of these issues that were happening that like you, I guess, couldn't believe? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say that was like why I wrote the book. But one, those, one of the reasons. So. Yeah. Those incidents certainly inspired um, the direction that the book took and they were the, um, Whitney Wolf, who was one of the founders of Tinder sued for sexual harassment. Um, and that case was settled in the fall of 2014. And then, um, a venture capitalist named Ellen Powell, who, um, was fired from Kleiner Perkins sued for sexual harassment, and I think wrongful termination and a whole bunch of other things. Um, And that trial started about a month after I had started my book. Um, But the lead up to the trial was like, there were so many stories about it. And I think people kind of couldn't believe that it was actually going to trial. Um, And when it went to trial, I was like, oh, this is so clearly, like she has such a strong case. She's clearly going to win this case. How could anyone not see that this was sexual harassment? Um, and she lost. And that was very eye-opening to me. Um, and yeah, so I was like, okay, I, like I really need to 
write about this in some way in my book. And but I was also like, oh God, what if sexual harassment in tech is not an issue by the time my book comes out? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I this is the only time in my life where I would I would say that I wish the plot of your book was not relevant anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like you know, uh, like I am. It's so depressing that it's so relevant. Like truly. Um, so yeah, I mean, if anything, I feel like it's kind of gotten worse or maybe we've just heard about more things, but it's like every time that I think like, well, gosh, you know, this incident surely is the worst thing we're going to hear about. <laughs> like, it, it keeps getting like one upped by yeah. some other ridiculous, ridiculously like disgusting. I mean, this story situation. that you just wrote. I, I like honestly couldn't believe that anybody could be that stupid. Yeah. But I mean, I'm sure that there are things that are much worse. Um, anyway, uh, not to dig down that rabbit hole. Um, you wrote this book, came out uh, by the time this airs about a month ago. Um, it's, it's a brilliant book. Um, everybody should read it. It's called Thank Startup. You by the great Dory Shafrir. <laughs> uh, did I get your name right? I'm, I'm always terrified. Yeah, you did. Shafrir. Okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to try really hard to not ask you questions that you've already answered because you've been interviewed uh, by a lot of different people and they've all asked you some really great questions. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I'm going to fall into it, uh, especially with this question that I'm about to ask. But um, but you have this kind of like nefarious event happening in the book where the editors at uh, a media company um, are asking the writers to craft harder hitting stories that don't just rely on like traffic, mm -hmm. um, but also a bunch of other metrics that they don't really define. Mm -hmm. And I guess my question is, um, and we talked a little bit about like the uh, BuzzFeed earlier, but um, is this based at all in, in reality that you've seen, not from BuzzFeed, but from just media companies in general? Oh, yeah. I mean, the nature of digital journalism is such that the goalposts are constantly shifting. And the metric that you're told is important one day can be changed the next day and the next day, and the next day. And I found as a writer and editor, um, and you know, again, this was not just at BuzzFeed, like I've worked at Gawker, I've worked at Rolling Stone's website. Um, I even, like when I was at the New York Observer, I, I wrote for their website a bunch and it, it's, it's everywhere. Um, and that's because like digital journalism is still relatively new and people have not quite totally figured out what matters when mm -hmm. it when it comes to, to digital media like you know for example when I was at Gawker which was in 2006-2007 the most important metric was page views now if you said that now people would like laugh at you but at the time it was like page views, page views, page views. And that's why people had slideshows and, you know, anything to sort of like game the system for page views was what they would do. And then it shifted, like it just was constantly shifting. Um, and they, they moved the goalpost on you. Yeah. They, they were constantly moving the goalposts. Um, and I just found, you know, I've been doing, I've been in digital media now for 10 years and like, I'm kind of used to it at this point. Like, I'm like, oh, you're going to, you want to measure this now? Oh, okay. But I, I do think that sometimes, especially for younger, for younger people in the industry um, who are forced to adapt really quickly, it can be kind of disorienting if that's the only thing you've ever known and you're suddenly told that it doesn't matter anymore. There's a, a distinction that's always drawn between digital journalism and print journalism. One of the interesting parts of Startup is the pressure that Katya, who is the reporter at... Uh, one of the fictional companies you name 
one of the more interesting arcs of her character is she starts to feel this pressure we've been talking about where the goalposts at her company shift Mm -hmm. um, and she's forced to sort of operate in a new paradigm. I guess what I was trying to target that question towards is how you think that constantly shifting the goalposts might affect, um, I guess, the development of digital journalism relative to print and how sort of the goalposts of today as arbitrary as they might be affect how you guys develop stories versus how print journalists develop stories. Right. Um, hmm. I mean, it's certainly disorienting, I think. Um, and sometimes the expectations that can come down from the top are a little befuddling. Um, at a previous job that I will not name, uh, there, there was someone who came in and their strategy was basically, like they, they admitted their strategy was throw spaghetti at the wall. Like no piece <laughs> of news was too small to write something about. So that to me felt like an extreme um, you know, when you will literally write about anything, then the value of news, I think, goes down and the value mm. of your writing goes down because the whole point of being a journalist, of being an editor, is being able to tell a reader this is important. And if you're suddenly saying everything <laughs> is important, then nothing is important. Uh, so that <laughs> sort of drove me crazy. Um, but... Yeah, so you know, I think it is. I think it is hard um, when the metrics that you're measured by are constantly changing. Whereas in print, theoretically, the only thing you have to care about is the is you know how how strong the story is. Although we all know that that's not really true, um, but at least theoretically, it is. In the book, Katya feels like a certain tension about reporting certain things based on like her own personal life. Within the context of the book, she discovers some some things because of where she was at, because of what was going on in her personal life. Um, and then she has to decide whether or not to report on that. Right. Now, is that like a kind of dynamic that if it had played out in real life, you would have reported on? Um, I probably would have passed the information on to another reporter to try and confirm and would not have tried to report it out myself. Um, is that the kind of conflict of interest that, you know, reporters today are facing more often? Or is that just a very specific example from a very specific book? (laughs) I mean, it's hard for me to say whether reporters today are facing that more often, um, because I don't really have that much to measure it against. I think there's always been uh, a tension that reporters feel when they're in a situation in their quote-unquote personal lives that could be reported on in their professional lives. Um, and you have to decide. Now, like, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a digital journalism or print journalism question. That's just a journalism question. Like, mm-hmm. what do you do when you are at a private event with friends and someone says something or does something that is newsworthy? Um, so, you know, I think different people have different ways of dealing with that. Um, I think that you know, you do have to, you're always making a choice as a journalist. Like, is this something that is going to affect someone? And is this person close to you? And does that mean something to you? I mean, for some people, the answer might be no. For some people, the answer might be yes. Like, you know, I, I don't know. How did you do the research for this book? Um, so a lot of it was based on reporting I had done or just kind of my experience of living in New York um, and being either always working at a startup, writing about startups or being like startup adjacent, like having a lot of friends who worked at startups and just being kind of in that community. So I feel like a lot of the 
stuff about startup culture in general, I kind of already got. Um, but then there were some specific things that I knew I didn't know. Um, in particular, in the character of Mac, who is a 28-year-old male startup founder, um, I didn't feel like I personally could very easily access sort of what made him tick. So I did a lot of interviews on background with um, startup founders um, and a couple of VCs and just you know, people whose experiences I was not super familiar with. I really just wanted to understand not just their worldview, but also like how they would deal with certain situations. Um, and some of those conversations made, made it into the book in some way, like never verbatim. Um, but I definitely drew on some of those conversations, which I was clear about with the people I interviewed. So you use all kinds of like shorthand in the book, like, uh, and on Twitter. Um, <laughs> my favorite recently was JFC. Uh, <laughs> and you also have a character in the book who is uh, a little bit older and like is kind of experimenting with um, how to fit in at a company that's, that's typically a lot younger. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I'm curious um, about with your career, not, not saying that you're, you're older, but also like you would no, de- say it, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying you developed in a world where, uh, you know, all of this was being invented like throughout your career, you yeah. know, and we all feel that same way. So, uh, you know, what was that like trying to figure out how to communicate in, in 2017? Well, I think social media was the biggest shift. Um, I mean, you know, it's not like acronyms were invented on Twitter. Like people were using acronyms on AIM and in text Mm -hmm. long before that. Um, But they probably weren't as spread as widely um, or used just in kind of the course of common conversation over instant, let's say over instant message among adults. Um, And... Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been a shift for sure. Um, you know, at BuzzFeed, I've always worked with people who are younger than I was. And um, it's mostly been a really positive experience for mm-hmm. me um, in large part because I feel like the people we hire at BuzzFeed are so smart and so creative and so funny. And I just feel like I can learn from them. Um, and you know, I'm a journalist. Like I, I like kind of seeing things through other people's eyes. So if I can try to sort of like understand how a 24 year old thinks, then like I'm into it. I also wanted to say there's the, hearing someone reference aim is like hearing a song from a past life it just takes me back like just hearing someone reference it is enough of a jolt of nostalgia for me isn't it but isn't it weird that that is like totally gone and it was such a like integral part of people's lives Mm -hmm. it was such a huge part of my life and it's nowhere now it's nowhere and it's uh, it's it's not even it's rarely mentioned and when it comes up it's such a delight it's just like it takes me right back to that moment in time well i'm glad i could take you there (laughs) i don't am i the only one who feels that way i can't no no i mean if you look on buzzfeed there are many i mean i don't don't know about many but there have been several (laughs) aim sort of nostalgia posts like what was your dozens of us screen name and kind of stuff like that um and no they're always super popular because I think for for people who got AIM, especially in like let's say middle school, you know, it it occupied such a significant part of their you know coming of age. Um, so yeah, it just it stands out. Yeah, for sure. My favorite is the Jerry Seinfeld Today Twitter account. Um, <laughs> totally, it's so which good. was there there it was started by someone who worked at BuzzFeed. Was it? I didn't know yeah. that. Well, he doesn't work at BuzzFeed anymore, but yeah, Jack Moore. <laughs> huh. He's riding that Twitter account to... Uh, well, he's a TV writer now, so he's oh, nice. riding it somewhere. 
to, to <laughs> greener pastures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you filled this thing up with all kinds of events that, uh, you know, may not have been topical by the time you published it. And we hit on like one of them with the sexual allegations in, in tech. Um, but there was a, many, many others. Uh, you know, I, I heard in interviews where you were like kind of worried about using like Instagram versus Snapchat and certain mm-hmm. issues uh, or instances, like just in case one of them didn't exist by the time you published this. Um, so how did you keep it relevant in a time when things are shifting so quickly? Well, one of the, one of the social media, uh, platforms that had a very brief appearance in the book that uh, died like in the course of edits was Vine. Um, (laughs) And so I was like, oh, I guess I have to change this. Um, But, you know, I think in terms of like Twitter, Instagram and Snapchat, like I was never really concerned that those three were going to go away. Um, But yeah, it's hard. I mean, you can't at some point you just have to like cut it off um because i could have been making small tweaks you know right up until the day the book came out like now i'm like hmm they would probably be taking a lift maybe not an uber you know what i mean but it's just like how like how detailed <laughs> They're can very you progressive. yeah how detailed can you get um so, yeah, but it was definitely, you know, yeah, it was definitely a concern. I mean, that was partly why I was so happy that my publisher, like, wanted to move quickly on publishing it. Um, because I was like, yeah, like, I don't want to wait another year and and risk, you know, stuff seeming, like, laughably obsolete. Now, look, obviously, anytime you write a book, it's going to end up taking place at a certain time. Um, but when you write a book that takes place in the quote unquote present day, um, you do want it to feel current, at least, at least within the first like six Mm. months that it comes out. Yeah. I'm sure there's like a battle between making it feel timeless and making it feel current. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think the best books are ones that you can read like 10 years later the best sort of present day set books are the ones that you can read 10 years later and the story still captivates you even if the setting has changed or the details of people's lives have changed and so i hope that 10 years from now people will read my book and be like oh yeah hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out yeah you you also didn't include any mention of podcasts this is true and you have a podcast right i do um, I have a podcast with my husband called Matt and Dory's Excellent Adventure about our attempts to have a child. I feel like this has kind of a, a built-in market. Mm-hmm. Would, would, you, would you agree with that? Um, I mean, it definitely has a built-in market of people who are struggling with infertility or doing IVF, which is what our podcast is about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do have a, a distinct small minority of people, uh, which I know because they email us, who <laughs> um, are have no interest in IVF, have nothing to do with IVF or have no interest in even having a child. Like we have listeners who are like 17 years old. Um, and we have listeners who are like, hi, I'm, I'm a 20 year old single male in college. (laughs) Like I'm, I'm not having a child like in any, like at any time remotely soon. Um, but I just, I, they're, you know, they're like, I just really like listening to a married couple talk. (laughs) Um, which is like okay cool um and i think it's really interesting like a byproduct of that has been kind of opening a lot of people's eyes to infertility and ivf um like on the last episode we played a voicemail from a woman who is 25 years old like single is not planning on having kids anytime soon but she somehow heard about our podcast and started listening to it and she was like, um, I want to donate my eggs now because I, you know, after listening to your podcast, I was like, Oh, holy shit. Like, that's amazing. Um, so it might not be for you, Jeff, but, (laughs) um, there, there are a lot of people who are not in the quote unquote demo who listen, which, which surprised me. I, I mean, know, I, think, it seems, I think that's There's probably like interesting... not to like how, how talented and, and interesting you and your husband are. Oh, I thank you. Yeah. So Kyle, I'm sorry I cut you off. 
It's okay, Jeff. It's fine. Um, no, I was just going to say, it seems like there is a contingent of people who will listen to podcasts uh, about seemingly anything. Um, and I'm referencing mostly the people who are listening to our podcast because I still can't believe that anyone actually does. Um, but it seems like as long as you are passionate about it, and I listened to your podcast as, and I especially loved the episode where you talk about how you got your dog bow. Hmm. Um, as a future dog owner myself, hmm. um, that Dogs one was that, great. That was close to the heart. <laughs> but I think there's just this audience out there for people who are passionate about things. And if you talk about something you enjoy, whether that's um, trying to have a baby or just two people in love who want to sit down and talk for an hour and a half, I I feel like people will find you. Yeah, I mean, people seem to have found us. <laughs> so yeah, it'll, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, it, you know, knock on wood, if we get pregnant, because the whole point of the podcast was to talk about an IVF journey. So if it turns into like a pregnancy podcast, I don't know if we're going to get like different listeners or if people will stay with it. It'll be interesting. Hmm. hmm. What, what, what about a what about a pregnancy and then a parenting podcast? So I write. I mean, from right from where I sit right now, I have no interest in doing a parenting podcast. I could see <laughs> myself doing a pregnancy podcast, but I think as soon as you start getting people involved who uh, do not have a say in whether they are involved, it gets a little <laughs> tricky. Like I. Like, I'm glad that people write about parenting and write about their kids. And look, when I have a kid, I will probably turn into one of those people. But I, right now, I don't know how comfortable I am having a child exposed on that level from, like, the day they're born. Like, it seems unfair to me, to the kid. Is there any chance that we'll see um, a totally anonymous podcast pop up with two people who sound like matt and dory but totally definitely aren't talking about parenting yeah. we'll just we'll just use our logo and just call it like <laughs> two parents talking about stuff totally unrelated to the previous podcast yeah, on this website exactly we just like the logo <laughs> daff and maury's adventure through parenting yeah exactly <laughs> so well, um, wait, is it tough being so open in front of so many people about something that's so personal to you um it's actually not um in fact i think it i think it makes it easier to talk about knowing that so many people are listening because and i say this on the podcast all the time that like no matter what weird situation or unusual medical condition or you know question or whatever we mention on the podcast inevitably someone emails or calls us and either like has the answer or is like, I went through that too, or, you know, has something to say about it. So it's a real, like, none of us is alone kind of thing. And like, that's nice. Huh. Okay. Well, uh, it seems like it's as good a time as any to transition to, uh, the latter part of our show where we discuss, you know, the one story that our guest has always struggled to tell uh, and you provided us with a couple stories that you, um, you know, told us that you had trouble writing. Uh, all mm -hmm. of them have, have been published. They've come out. Uh, I'm wondering if, is, is there one in particular that you would like to talk about? Um, or should, should we pick? Why don't you guys pick? I think the one, the only one we haven't touched on so far is the story of the hipster grifter. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's sort of the one I was hoping we would be able to focus on. In this sure. Show. Yeah. So uh, do you want to give us like a little bit about what the story actually is, where it was published, and then um, why it was such a struggle for you to write? Yeah. So this was a story that came out in April 2009, so about eight years ago. Um, and it was the story of a young woman who um, had just been fired from her job at Vice after they discovered that she was wanted in Utah. Um, and she had kind of 
it turned out she kind of scammed her way into various jobs and um, had scammed some of her ex-boyfriends and friends and um, and also in a very short amount of time in New York, she had like a lot of people knew her. Um, so she had really been sort of like making the rounds and everyone had a story about her. Um, and I was just like really fascinated. Um, and the way I got the story was I had a friend who worked at Vice and he messaged me and was like, Hey, this really weird thing happened. Um, and he told me the story and he was like, do you think like maybe it'd be a good story for Gawker? And I was working at the New York Observer at the time. And he was sort of like, like, would you pass it along to someone there? Um, and I believe I did send it to them and they didn't do anything with it. And then I was like, actually, like, I think I might want to look into this. And he's like, okay, cool. Um, and so I just started digging and she, I remember she had been, she'd been on MySpace and there was a, uh, there was a MySpace group that was like devoted to catching her. And this was 2009. So this was like, no one I knew was really on MySpace anymore. Like, I think I deactivated my account, but I had to like start a new MySpace account so that I could like <laughs> learn more about this woman. Um, and I, I got her number from someone and I called her a couple of times and left messages and emailed her excuse me, she never responded. And I was like, okay, well, this is going to have to be a write around, which is hard. I mean, you know, of course, everyone always talks about Frank Sinatra has a cold is like the ultimate write around, but like, write arounds are tricky. Like, they can be good, especially if, like, I think if you are writing about a celebrity, who has a lot of stuff out there about them and who people already know, but to try to like paint a picture of someone who no one knows, um, who's going to be reading it and to try and like get at their personality and what they've done and, you know, they won't respond to you. So you're only presenting one side of the story. Um, I was like, fuck, how am I going to do this? Like, this is really hard, but um, eventually I think I talked to enough people and got enough documentation that I was like, I was confident in the story I was telling and that she had committed the things that people were accusing her of. Um, and yeah, but it's, it, it was tough. It was really hard, um, to, to write that. Did she read the story? Are you, do you know about that? Yeah, I think she, I know she read the story. She then was like, oh, d like the reporter never contacted me, but like she was a pathological liar. So <laughs> I don't think anyone really believed her. Um, and no, and then she, I think she realized that she could use this to her advantage. She could use the story to her advantage. Like she, um, she was then, she was arrested in Philly. She like fled to Philadelphia and was arrested, but she kind of became like this, um, oh my God, what's the word? Like outlaw. She became this like outlaw figure, this, um, you know, people were, people got kind of obsessed with her and were like saying, like she had this, she had one time like, yelled at the in the middle of union pool that she wanted a guy to, or I forget exactly what did she maybe she yelled it or she passed a guy a note that said like I want you to throw your hot dog down my hallway and that uh, had become yes. like her catchphrase and so people were like <laughs> saying it and you know this was like this was 2009 so things I don't know things things didn't move as fast like I feel like people were talking about the hipster grifter for a while um and then it, ironically Gawker ended up aggregating the story and um becoming like very obsessed with the story and I was like you guys like you guys didn't do anything on the story like <laughs> I gave you the story and you didn't do anything on it um but yeah she she turned herself into this sort of like notorious um, outlaw figure for a while in New York and like people would, you know, 
send in sightings of the hipster grifter and um but you know I think I think ultimately like her life was kind of sad and and um I think she's married now she married some guy in the army um but yeah what was the hardest part about writing that story aside from the fact that you couldn't actually get in contact with the person you were writing about um I mean that was that was really hard um but you know getting enough people to confirm stuff because again when you don't have the person you're writing about um you want to get as many people as possible to talk to you um especially on the record and not everyone in the piece talked to me on the record, but, um, that, you know, that was hard and like tracking people down and getting people to trust me and want, you know, cause like a lot of them were embarrassed. Like a lot of these guys she had dated were, were angry, but they were also embarrassed that like they had been kind of taken in by her. Like she, you know, she would do, she would like tell people she had cancer and like she did, you know, she had roommates who she like didn't, you know, she skipped out on the rent and all like she just had she she had all the classic sort of signs. But I think a lot of these and like why we called her the hipster grifter is like I think a lot of these kids um at the time didn't think that sort of like one of their own, quote unquote, could be a scammer. And of course now we have like Joanne the scammer and you know scamming has become kind of like a a cultural touchstone, but like at the time, I don't think it really was. And people were like sh- kind of shocked and, Im- but also sort of impressed that she had gotten away with it for as long as she did. Um, I thinking about you trying to confirm like the contents of the notes that she passed <laughs> and like that hot dog in a hallway <laughs> thing is a very funny image. Uh, yeah. It was a fun, it was a fun, I mean, ultimately it was a fun story, but it was, it was tough. And so Jory, where can our listeners find more from you online? Um, well, they can go to my website, which is dory-shafrir.com. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Dory, D-O-R-E-E. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dory. Um, and I'm also, you know, you can look at my stuff on BuzzFeed, but. Um, those are all the, those are all the places. Dory, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us tonight to talk about startup and IVF podcasts. Yeah. Thanks for having me, which is Matt and Dory's excellent adventure, which you can find on your favorite podcast app. So the hipster grifter probably maybe, uh, potentially still lives in Brooklyn, Jeff, and is still, (laughs) I feel like she's in jail. Uh, you think she's in jail? She might be in jail, but I feel yeah. like she's probably, like, I don't think people in Williamsburg have gotten smarter. Well, if she's in jail, she's probably out of jail at this point, because I was like nine years ago that she wrote this thing. Any of our listeners can go and, and read it. It's on The Observer, The Observer's website. Uh, speaking of The Observer, like, what is going on with Jared Kushner, man? Let's not even go down that road. Let's just tell them where they can find out more about Dory. You're just, you're crushing my dreams and my hopes of making this into like a politics podcast. I know, but like, I just want to wait until we have more information about whether or not he works for Russia. I wonder who gets to own it if, if he like gets committed for treason. Maybe they'll give it to, maybe they'll, they'll give it to Dana Schwartz. For treason? What are they going to send him to the asylum? Send him to the asylum jail. Maybe maybe they'll uh Asylum jail for treason nerves. Where can people find more of Dory's work? I would go to Dory's website, which is Dory D O R E E dash Shafrir S H A F R I R dot com. Uh, or you can find her on Twitter at Dory D O R E E. She's also on Instagram and you can see a phenomenally large body of work at buzzfeed.com if you just google dory shafrir i think it'll come up she has a ton of cool interviews on like the nerdist with chris hardwick media uh recode decode with um peter kafka anyway uh she's all over the place you should check it out you can buy her book wherever books are sold it's called startup it's by dory shafrir uh and in two weeks we have aaron lamer on the show uh, which 
most people who listen to this show probably already listen to Longform um, and are familiar, but Aaron is one of three hosts of Longform, the second to be on our show, uh, along with Evan Ratliff, who was an episode back in the day. Um, Aaron is also, uh, he just launched a new show himself called Stoner, and he is uh, a writer for the band Francis and the Lights. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And we have a newsletter at tinyletter.com slash www.podcast. We look forward to hearing from you guys all over the social media-verse. And you can also give us a review or a smash like on whatever platform you prefer to listen to podcasts. Uh, We don't pay a penny to advertise the show, so uh, the only advertising that we get is from word of mouth so tell your friends if you really enjoyed it uh let us know because it's nice and it helps us keep going uh and in the meantime uh we want to thank ryan dan of holland patent public library for providing the music at the top and the bottom of the show you can find him on soundcloud at holland patent public library Uh, he also has a website and a new album coming out soon Uh, and then the music that you heard right in the middle of the show is from uh, ben sound which you can find at bensound.com Thank you again, and we'll see you in two weeks.